Hello, I'm Michael H. Shewery, host of Artroverted, a podcast about the art world. Each week, I speak with leaders and changemakers in the arts, from artists to museum directors and everyone in between. We discuss their experiences, the communities they serve, and why they've dedicated their lives to art. This week, I speak with Kyle Hobrach, co-founder and director of 100 West, an artist residency in Corsicana, Texas. In less than a decade, Kyle has managed to turn a sleepy town 50 miles south of Dallas into a cultural hub, attracting artists from around the globe to live and work. In our conversation, Kyle talks about creating and nurturing a creative community in a small town, juggling, running an artist residency with his own artistic practice, as well as the importance of residencies in the pandemic. This episode was recorded on May 26, 2020. So without further ado, let's jump in. Thanks for joining me, Kyle. Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really excited. I, I mean, I had the great fortune of coming down to Corsicana a few months ago and seeing the incredible work you're doing down there. And I'm really excited to talk about that. But I first want to ask you, how did you get into the arts? I studied painting, right, in college. And that wasn't always the plan. I uh, was going to combine business with advertising and go to some applied arts and I don't know. I, I ended up with just a degree in painting. And before that, I guess as a kid, I um, I was always drawing and making things. And my mom's an architect. My dad is a mechanical engineer. And they had a, a small workshop in the back of the garage. And so I would sort of fart around in there to make little boxes or little puzzles on a scroll saw. So, you know, I guess I was in an environment that encouraged it thankful for that. But I don't know that I really full on got into it until after school and started working with other artists and saw how their practices developed into careers, you know, began assembling something of my own. So let's talk about Corsica Canada. Three are right now. It's 55 miles south of Dallas, but it can really feel like a world away. Um, it's, of course, most famous around the world for the Collins Street Bakery, which is the largest manufacturer of fruitcakes. Uh, I remember when we were there, we were talking about the, the possible film that might be oh, I think it's happening. And cheerleaders are also famous for, you know, the best uh, junior college cheerleading squad in the country. How did you discover Corsicana and when did you decide that it was going to be the place where you wanted to start an artist residency? Well, I'll, um, I'll say the artist residency was never part of the plan. I mean, I, I, uh, I was looking for a wood shop in Dallas with some buddies, a close friend, Kiernan Laughlin, sculptor and interested in some furniture. And I were not so seriously, but, you know, looking around Dallas for places where you could rent a warehouse and start assembling some equipment and have some semblance of a proper workshop. This was eight, nine years ago. And the viability of a corrugated metal building that was beyond our price point was just, you know, forget it. So I had a small printmaking studio at the time and was teaching workshops, etching and engraving. And I had a gal in my class named Nancy Rebel, who knew that I was looking for a space for a wood shop, couldn't find anything. And she said, you know, Kyle, maybe just check out this building my friend has in the market. It's been on the market two years. It's not going to go anywhere. You might just consider leasing from her for a while to get something going. And she said it's in this town called Corsicana. I'd never heard of Corsicana before. I called the realtor to schedule an appointment, went down with a friend, Anna Membrino, and was pretty taken with this property that is this 1890s Oddfellows Lodge that somehow, you know, since its construction has evaded any kind of update, didn't succumb to any mid-century drop ceiling, air conditioning, none of this. 
Um, it was also, you know, in poor respect, pretty well neglected. So this was a very damp. And I remember going on a rainy day, water buckets were filling up. The wood in the building was pretty moist and soft. And the spaces were huge and it had all this light, you know, an atmosphere that was so bizarre to me. I mean, the Odd Fellows built spaces for ceremonies and you know, social gatherings that are pretty bizarre. You know, it wasn't anything I was familiar with. So I was quickly taken with this place alongside several friends I would bring back, you know, over the course of two weeks to see if, you know, a plan could be assembled rather quickly. Because, of course, this building that had been on the market for two years, the realtor suddenly says, oh, there are three offers on the table. And if you don't put yours in, it's going to, you know... <laughs> it's gonna leave the potential so the plan became if i bought the building and use the ground floor for wood shop it was ideal for that the second and third floors which were spaces that i i, I didn't need for myself for a wood shop could turn into studio spaces for friends who would pay you know some nominal amount of rent to just kind of cover basic bills and a you know some some mortgage so that's what happened. Um, Nancy Rebel, who had introduced me to it, and her husband, David Searcy, who's an essayist, um, joined me. And they had the third floor for several years. Um, other artists like Travis Lamoth and Kiernan Laughlin, Anna Membrino, Kristen Cochran for a little bit, made use of the second floor, Randall Morgan. And, you know, it was somewhat communal, but across 11,000 square feet, you could carve out your own space. We're all based in Dallas. So of course, a canna for us was an escape to something that to, to, to a place that really had very few distractions and felt like a world away. There's no air conditioning in the building. So, you know, summers were warm and we'd open windows, but it felt somewhat monastic and somehow like a, a more rich format for living, you know, a little more, a lot more uh, essential stripped away the fluff, a building barely furnished, you know, just these big rooms to conceive projects in. So the residency didn't take off until, uh, or it wasn't even really conceived until um, a few years in. And I guess when I say residency, you know, a program where you would have an application and some semblance of continuity, you know, bringing people from outside of your of your immediate intimate network to experience this place. Had you ever participated in an artist residency? No, <laughs> I have no experience. You know, uh, I think in a lot of ways at its core, a residency for anything, a residency for artists and writers is just a very human thing to do. You know, creating space, creating a home, creating a, an environment, and then inviting people to share in it is is like a very timeless human thing. So at its core, I don't think you have to have experience. Although when you get into the liabilities and the legal implications and contracts, and sure, it would be great to have some boilerplates to work from. And those developed over time through a litany of experiences. I had um, several friends who I think just became a little too comfortable with living there uh, in this weird little town. Removed from Dallas, don't have to make much money to survive down here. And um, they weren't really producing in the studios, just, you could say, loafing. And um, reached a point where we decided, you know, this isn't sustainable, nor is it something we're proud of. Let's make an application and have people tell us why they might want to be here and spend a month or two. And so I made a website, and we branded the thing and put out a call for submissions. And in the first year, we had 100 people apply and selected, I think, something like 12 
to come the following year. You know, it's two artists and a writer at any given time. They don't know each other. It's some social experiment. They share a kitchen and a living space, and they each get these large studios, and they hack away at their work. It's beautiful. I think it's really interesting that you invite not only visual artists, but also authors, writers. How did the idea or the impulse to include them in your program come about? I guess I got to give the respect to David Searcy, who, you know, is a founding member of this project. David, again, is the husband of Nancy Rebel. And David uh, is an essayist based in Dallas, although you know, day by day, it's being pulled by this gravitational force to Corsicana. So in the early days, you know, in large part, it was Nancy, David, and myself in this Oddfellows Lodge. And David's practice felt just as valuable in that space as any visually based media that Nancy and I or Travis, you know, were pursuing. It was amazing to get to see David hammer away in one of these 2,400 square foot rooms on a little typewriter. You know, these... <laughs> These keys just pounding away, click, 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 click in this huge room. And uh, I love the margin of space around a little writing desk. Somehow it seemed necessary for a mind that's putting thoughts into words. And, uh, and writers are in large part easier to host than artists. They don't come with stuff. They're not making a mess. They talk more, I think, <laughs> in general. And there's not... An overt difference, but there is something that a writer contributes that artists, in large part, don't always contribute. And similarly, artists to writers. So the combine the chemistry there is uh, that I'm, that's the train in the background. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's part of the charm. So I, that chemistry has been a nice balance. I mean, and it also is frankly defined by the the layout, the, the design of the building, which I haven't altered. It's as it was 1890s Oddfellows Lodge, which means there was a large meeting hall on the third floor, a large meeting hall of the same dimension on the second floor, and then on the third floor there was also this little ante room, which is a receiving room before the odd fellows go into their meeting hall. And that ante room is measures maybe 500 square feet or so. And it has its own little bathroom. And uh, it just felt like the, the perfect space for a writer. So, um, you know, you got to monetize these things too. <laughs> and how do you do that? No one, well, not very well. <laughs> I mean, no one makes a fortune on a residency. Uh, I... I mean, the thing loses money. Like, this is not a money making. This is a this is a passion project. This is not. This covers basic utilities and some insurance and payments on a building to own it. But um, artists and writers who you know are brave enough to remove themselves from their daily life and go to a foreign place to make their work are probably already just by leaving their home and their job losing money. Doesn't leave them with a lot to to pay toward an experience. So you know, I've worked with some local nonprofits created our own here to help you know, support their stays, but I try to make it as affordable as I can. You have to give a little bit in order to reap the benefits. I guess it's, it's, it's part of it. You also don't want to make it about you know, the payment for space because that's not what it's about. You know, that's a necessary obstacle, but you know, you're here to create an experience and that's, that's hard to put a, a dollar amount to. Yeah, of course. So what sort of makers do you try to, I guess, attract but and, and promote and, um, and, and do you want? Um, gosh, 
you know, so every year, September 1st is an application deadline for anybody to submit. I mean, I guess the only exceptions would be no ceramicists. I love ceramic work. It's probably my favorite media. I don't do very well at it, but I, I love it. But it makes a lot of dust. It can. You need a kiln. You need a facility. And it, 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 uh, it doesn't mix well with other practices. So dancers, um, you know, the building needed a lot of structural work over the years. The support posts on the inside, some of them were hanging from the ceiling. They weren't touching the ground. And so your floors had a, a bounce to them. So a lot of movement or dancers just didn't feel good. So it has, you know, the direction's been primarily um, any kind of creative pursuit that requires a large room, you know, 2,400 square foot room. Generally, you know, we're looking for artists who have a need for that space who also have some conceptual hunger for texas if they're not from this place who uh wouldn't be able to produce whatever it is they're proposing to produce if they weren't given the space so if it's something that could be easily made you know in their small new york city apartment I guess I'm less interested in hosting it. It would be nice to think that the work was only made possible by way of this place. Gosh, it's it's hard to define what kind of practice comes here. Has that happened? Has it been successful? Have people produced things that are very much tied to the place and that couldn't have been produced anywhere else? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, those are the projects I'm most proud of, or the ones that have investigated this place. There are several examples. Uh, a gentleman, uh, Emmerich Eberard, is here uh, from, from Paris, and he had the third floor for several months and was fascinated by the various strands of history in this part of Texas, in this town, which is the first oil town in Texas. They had the first refinery west of the Mississippi, and that's how this town made its fortune and built the downtown that we see today. And Emmerich was pulled to gather as many remnants of buildings that have been torn down or eras that didn't have you know a standing representation anymore and he would he assembled a spectacular installation on the third floor informed aesthetically in some ways by marion dorn who was this carpet designer in the late 19th early 20th century i think she had designed the carpet patterns on the titanic even and had also pasolini's um some of his films had some carpet patterns informed by her so emmerich had painted the floor he'd laid down an underlayment of plywood and had painted a pattern with oxidized blood from cattle from nearby and oil from nearby oil fields made his own pigment and paint and fashioned these patterns that were evocative of a masonic or odd fellows space and on this pattern or he arranged these architectural fragments and things that he had found from around town. It was it felt so worthwhile and significant because the connections he was making, the, the, the objects he was putting next to each other would have, I think, you know, otherwise never have found their way to each other to make visual connections historical connections for people who saw it. Another resident, Ed Eva from Britain, had come and um, did just walls and walls worth of these drawings with a pen plotter looking so closely at these tile patterns and historic properties and how they relate to larger gridded patterns of small urban areas. So they were mappings of a more macro level and they were renderings of a more micro level 
of um, hexagonal tile floors. They were so marvelous, you know, and there's a lot to dig into here. A lot of it's unique to this town, and a lot of it is also unique to this area of Texas and the kind of cinematic story that Texas gets to tell and sometimes grows into obscene proportions. <laughs> but whatever. And that's what, you know, someone maybe from South Korea who's only seen Texas through cinema is fascinated to uncover on their own and see if it holds water or not once they show up. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I think it's this investigative approach that is combined with, you know, at least my personal taste, combined with uh, a rigorous craft when the projects are best or, or most successful, I guess. And also projects that require a lot of time because it's tough to justify these spaces in a matter of a month or several weeks. I mean, really, you need to be here for several months, ideally, you know, four months to get some serious traction. COVID's been helpful for that. The residents have stayed longer. How many residents do you have right now and how are they doing? What are they working on? I have three residents right now. They're all artists. Two artists in the Odd Fellows Lodge at 100 West. The residency program is growing outside of this one building. You know, the building is 100 West, and the the nonprofit, the the, the program that supports it, is the Corsicana Artists and Writers Residency. Um, so in that vein, we've opened up an additional site. There are other sites in this downtown outside of 100 West that'll become useful for for artists. And this one in particular is called the Samuels Building. It's part of the the Jewish merchants area of downtown Corsicana. 1880s building upstairs is, again, you know, largely untouched since the 1920s. And a resident, Eric DeLuca from Providence, Rhode Island, has been here for several months. All these residents have been here since March. You know, we're now at the end of May, three-month residency. Um, And he, in that studio, is growing from seed 2,000 milkweed plants. It's a milkweed nursery that is being cultivated beneath uh, grow lights, these ultraviolet magenta-looking lights that from outside, when you're on the street, glow outside those windows upstairs. (laughs) People slow down and look, what the hell is going on up there? And Eric has put together this gorgeous narrative investigating milkweed, which is the host plant for monarch butterflies, which is Texas state insect, and is seeing a rapid decline year after year in its population, detectable population, to the point that monarch butterflies, these orange and black butterflies that every child comes to know as like the butterfly, could foreseeably reach an endangered list. And so... Eric's not trying to fool anybody, I don't think, by saving the monarch butterfly species. But he's performing this gesture that's sincere and communicates the need for milkweed, more milkweed, because it's the only plant that monarchs will eat and breed from. This is all news to me, by the way. I, I didn't know about any of this until Eric showed up. I didn't even know that the monarch butterfly was, it's the use of the Texas state insect. That's a fact, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and Eric is Jewish. And is interested in, Jew- in Corsicana's rich Jewish history. And he has teamed up with a 95-year-old woman here, Babette Samuels, who is the matriarch of the remaining Jewish community. And she oversees the, the Hebrew cemetery, which has a side lot where Eric is planting this halfway native milkweed. And now I'm excited about this project. This is what I'm going on just to tell you about it. It's going to take place 
Sweet Pass Sculpture Park in Dallas. Could be planting milkweed there, installing this hundred and some foot long magenta light strip that is oriented on the ground in the direction of the monarch migratory pattern direction, which is loosely on a north-south axis from Mexico to Canada. We're also installing a small exhibition of Eric's work, a sampling of the milkweed beneath one grow light with some text to describe what's going on here in the front of, of my space across the street from 100 West. And he's donating, I don't know, a thousand milkweed that he grew from seed to the Corsicana Parks and Recreation Department to plant in public parks. So, you know, this is an example of a residency stay that, you know, has taken time to get to know this place. When you need time for the milkweed to grow, too. What's the, how long does it take for milkweed to mature? Each little seed he has to clip the tip of with nail clippers to uh, generate their... Yeah, that's wild. ...their potential energy. He made tables to support these troughs of milkweed. You know, the space is absolutely bizarre. You know, it's probably a 20, 200-square-foot room. Nothing in it. He cleared everything out except for this 6-by-11-foot standing-height work table that he made from wood that was found in the space. And that is in the center of the exact center of the room beneath these suspended magenta colored grow lights. And imagine at night, I mean, it just fills the whole space. The plants are green, but under a magenta light, they look black. It's really something. And a lot of this wasn't forecasted. You, know, you don't know this stuff. You just kind of do it because it's what needs to be done to grow milkweed. And then you end up with also a stimulating visual experience. Also, uh, on the third floor of the Odd Fellows Lodge at 100 West, uh, Max Kuhn, who's largely itinerant, travels the country. He has for the last 10 years in the world doing, uh, making his living on tattooing. He's become very successful as a tattoo artist and he's closing the, the cover of that book, I think he would admit, to pursue a career driven more toward a studio practice that's less on people's bodies. He's building and painting a diorama of small town America that is uh, told through his experiences on the highway in towns that are fading. So, um, you know, he and I talk about towns we love in New Mexico, like Santa Rosa, with these great signs from mid-20th century. It's not just nostalgic. It's about, you know, what does this stuff mean today? How do we engage with it today? But uh, the diorama is, I don't know what scale it would be, 112th, 164th, I don't know. <laughs> it's big. And it's probably 20 feet wide, taller than a person, and it's a collection of little buildings and all these signs. I mean, Max is a spectacular renderer, sign painter. And so he's, um, you know, has kinetic elements. He recreated big texts in some way, although he wouldn't call it big. He has articulating limbs on I guess it's a, a bull looks more like a bison I don't know what he's representing but it, in some way it almost feels mythological it's all these sort of little little boy and girl imaginations of uh, the west coming into play through a small town experience that's happening on the third floor you know it feels like a, a theater set a diorama holds its weight as a theater set in in this room that the odd fellows used for performances it's like a backdrop and then Linnea Kniaz. Uh, on the second floor is here from New York City, and she produces work, um, drawings, paintings, objects that are 
done produced serially, responding to very finite recorded details she notices throughout specific times of a day through a specific window, like the passing of a bicycle or the movement of a bird shadow across a building seen through this window. She records these little moments of life through these small objects she's building out of nuts and bolts and perforated metal banding and colored pencil, and they're little pieces of magic. They're not representational in accessible ways, you know, in readily accessible ways that require some explanation, but they're extremely special to get to see developed here. So now I'm going to move into something I call the lightning round. So the first one is early bird or night owl. I feel best as an early bird. I gravitate to night owl. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Talking or texting? I hate texting. Facebook or Instagram? I don't like either one, but I do Instagram. I don't have Facebook. What's the last book you read? Mm, I have several on my nightstand. One right now is uh, Hot, Cold, Heavy Light by Peter Schlittow, uh, who contributed 30 years worth of critical reviews in New York and can't remember who published it, but it, it just came out. Yeah, I have it on one level of my nightstand as well. It's it's pretty far down the list of what I'm working on, but yeah. Oh, you got to move it. Yeah. Um, also, I know a lot of folks are reading this, but I, I, I adore this book, The Overstory. Huh, I haven't heard of it. It's about trees in short. Richard Powers writes it. And I try to read as much resident work as I can. So Kendra Green just had a book published by Penguin. It's a long title. Uh, the Museum of Wales and all the other museums you'll never see in Iceland. No, that's not it. That's something like this. Um, I'm sorry, Kendra. <laughs> I love <you. laughs> I, um Everybody should go out and buy it. What's your first memory in a museum? Uh, I used to spend my summers in Taos and, um, and in Santa Fe at the Harwood Museum in Taos, where they have this Agnes Martin room. That was that was pretty monumental for me. The space in which you live is really beautiful, and, and I hate to use the word curated, but it's very thoughtful in the way that you've selected the things that you live with. And I'm wondering, what do you collect? Um, I try to not collect anything anymore. I mean, I as a kid, I was collected all kinds of stuff. I mean, I rocks and ephemeral things, and I saved everything as a kid. I mean, I still do, you know, letters and notes and boxes. And I mean, I, you know what I do collect? I collect odd fellow historical pieces. So things that would have been used in the lodge, like the odd fellows lodge I have. I'm interested in that. Yeah, that's really cool. What kind of odd fellow memorabilia or ephemera do you have? I have a grave marker it's hanging in the kitchen. I have handbooks, banners, some Goliath beards and masks, beautiful hand-painted banners from you know, turn into the 20th century on silk tassels and kind of ridiculous. And then in Corsicana, I do my best to find, you know, these things end up in family in family garages, you know, books that are dated 1870s, Corsicana, Texas, log books from this lodge, folding chairs from the building, things from the specific lodge. If you put your ear to the ground, you can find it. You know, I, I love this notion, this, uh, this call, this quote, um, you know, to, if every box had its lid, if, if every jar had its lid again, the world would be a better place. And there are a lot of missing jars, a lot of missing lids on jars. In some ways, I'd like to find those lids and put them back on the jars here, on this lodge at least, because I think that the stuff means more in context. Um, I don't like taking a lot of things outside of the context, I guess, when I think about collecting. Site specificity is you know, important. 
Yeah, I completely agree. That's really cool. If I see any Oddfellows memorabilia, I'll definitely try and and, uh, and and pick that up for you. If you weren't running 100 West, what would you be doing? I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> I would be, I think I would be running a different 100 West, maybe in some Italian village. That would be nice. But I'm, I can't do, I'm not, I don't speak Italian and I am not in Italy. Uh, I'm in Texas. And so this little town is built with a lot of what's been called Italianate style neoclassical architecture. So I'm in my own little Italy of Texas and it's been great. So yeah, I don't know. I really don't. I think about it and I can't even imagine. Maybe you'd be making more art. I'd be making something. Maybe I'd be, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, how much of art I want to be really making. Though. I mean, there's a lot of people making a lot of things, a lot of clutter out there. A lot of it's good. A lot of it's not so good. I don't want to just contribute to the mounds of stuff. I think there's a lot of value in that. And um, people should should take that into consideration, I think. Um, also on that note, uh, what's the advice that you could give someone who wants to establish an art artist residency? Airbnb opened the door to residencies in the way that we have come to receive them today for artists and writers. Or I think you could have a residency in your own home, probably if you had a really good program and you made anyone you're hosting feel comfortable and supported their practice. But I think place is what's most important about a residency. And if you wanted to start a residency, I think you should be responsible in finding a place that needed or would benefit from creative practitioners. And I think that that is the case in a lot of small towns and a lot of rural places across the states. I wish more people, and I think that they are, would look into forgotten small towns where there's incredible infrastructure and urban planning, but it's just not being used to the capacity that it could. I guess I wouldn't encourage anybody to start a residency in an urban metropolitan environment. It sounds boring and done and expensive and a little frustrating, but what do I know? I'm in some little town in Texas, you know, and it's working here. I just think that if you're starting a residency in an urban environment where property is so expensive, properties and whoever owns that property is going to make an impression on a program that this is my suspicion would be, would feel imposed upon. I think the farther you can get away from the constraints of the finances and the noise of urban environments, the more successful a program could become. It would feel more free. It would feel more authentic in terms of a human element, more interesting. Yeah, I couldn't agree more that there's so many places across the country that are in need of a creative community or element. Yeah, I mean, creative people who can help problem solve. Absolutely. Milkweed is not going to solve the problems of Corsicana. (laughs) But, you know, it's a place that I, I think may get more utility out of planting milkweed than some developed part of Dallas. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, with your last response, you really answered my my final question I like to ask everybody uh, is that, you know, there's no crystal ball, but if I give you a magic wand, what would be your wish for the art world? Authenticity. I think there's a lot of ironic and copied work going on that trends propel. And I find it excruciatingly frustrating. And I hate it. And I can't say that I'm immune to it. I don't also fall into that, you know, but my wish would be that everybody who's producing something is thinking about that. How is that work being formed? From what 
shared experience or from what reference point and are those reference points authentic or are they inferred, you know, authenticity? Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Kyle. Thank you, Michael. Extremely special. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to come back down and, and appreciate the, the, your time. Thank you for the interest yeah. in reaching out. This has been really fun to do. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Archiverted. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to join us next week for a special episode featuring two guests, Tamara Johnson and Trey Burns, artists and co-founders of Sweet Pass Sculpture Park, a one-acre lot in the rapidly gentrifying neighborhood of West Dallas that exhibits emerging and mid-career artists in an outdoor setting on a rotating basis. Remember, when it comes to art, it doesn't matter if you're introverted or extroverted because you can always be archiverted. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.